So as we continue to explore this topic of courage under fire, we're ready for the next part of our story. So I hope that you're all sitting comfortably as Peter continues the story. We pick up the story from last week with Daniel and his three mates from Judah kicking goals in a foreign land as King Nebuchadnezzar's poster boys for wisdom and insight. In the second year of his reign, King Nebuchadnezzar started having dreams that disturbed him so much he couldn't sleep. He called in all his Babylonian magicians, enchanters, sorcerers and fortune tellers to interpret his dreams for him. But the sneaky old king wouldn't even tell them what his dream actually was. In fact, he doubled down on this test and added a life or death ultimatum, saying to them, if you can't tell me both the dream itself and its interpretation, I'll have you ripped to pieces and all your homes and holiday houses destroyed. But if you tell me both the dream and its interpretation, I'll lavish you with gifts and honours and as many negatively geared investment properties as you can handle. So get on with it. Tell me my dream and its interpretation. Realising they were in an impossible situation, they mumbled about and tried at least to get him to tell them what the dream was so they could have a crack at it in the interpretation. But the king said, oh, I know what you're up to. You're just trying to buy time. I think you realise you're heading for the chop shop. The fortune tellers and magicians appealed to logic saying, nobody anywhere can do what you ask. And no king, great or small, has ever demanded anything like this from any magician, enchanter or fortune teller. What you're asking is impossible, unless some god or goddess should reveal it, and we just don't have access to that kind of power. Well, that little dose of reality just flipped the king's switch, and he lost his temper and ordered the whole company of Babylonian wise men killed. Now, for some reason, when the death warrant was issued, Daniel and his three mates who were following God's way were somehow lumped in with the Babylonian Fortune Tellers and Magicians Federation, and they also were scheduled for execution. Now, remember, Daniel was gifted with wisdom. So rather than freaking out, he took the court chief aside, found out what was going on, and managed to get some time so he could have a crack at the impossible task of interpreting the king's dream. Dan went home and enlisted his three mates, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, not to conjure up an escape plan back to the home country, but to pray for the God of heaven for mercy in solving this mystery so the four of them wouldn't be killed, along with the whole of the Babylonian wise men industry. That night, the answer to the mystery was given to Daniel in a vision. And he responded by giving thanks, praise, and adoration to the God of all things. And when Daniel appeared before the king, the king, knowing this was near, a near impossible task, said, Are you sure you can do this? Are you sure you can tell me my dream and interpret it for me? And Daniel answered, No mere human can solve the king's mystery. No wise man, enchanter, magician, diviner, or superhero. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He's letting you, the king, in on what is going to happen. In the days ahead. This is the dream you had. 
you saw a huge and terrifying statue standing before you, a head of pure gold, chest and arms of silver, torso of bronze, legs of iron, and the feet were made of a mixture of iron and clay. Then you saw a stone cut out of a mountain by an invisible hand hit the statue, smashing its feet, and the whole thing fell to pieces, scattered into oblivion. But the stone that hit the statue became a huge mountain, dominating the horizon. That was your dream. And now for the interpretation, which is coming to you through me, not to make me look good, but so that you will understand what it means. You are the head of gold in the statue, but your rule will be taken over by kingdom after kingdom, just like the silver, bronze, clay and iron. But throughout the history of these kingdoms, the God of heaven will be building a kingdom that will never be destroyed or ruled by another. The great God has let you, the current king, know what will happen in the years to come. And when Daniel finished, King Nebuchadnezzar's drawer dropped almost to the palace floor. He fell on his face in awe before Daniel and said to him, Your God is beyond question the God of all gods, the master of all kings, and he solves all mysteries. I know that because of what you've told me today. In the face of death, Daniel's faith that God would intervene was tested and proven. He remained faithful to God even when under fire. The crisis of death was averted. The crazy king was appeased and came good on his promise. Daniel got a top-shelf job in the kingdom headquarters. He was lavished with gifts, was made governor over the entire province of Babylon, and was now the boss of all the Babylonian wise men. And Daniel didn't forget his three mates who prayed with him that night of the vision, and he managed to get them top jobs as well. Stay tuned for the next exciting chapter of Daniel about a barbecue that didn't quite go to plan. That's really good, really good. Well, welcome this morning. Glad to have you here with us. It's really good to be able to gather together. Just as I begin this morning, three other things that I just want to bring to your attention. The first one is this. This coming Tuesday night from 7.30 to 9.30 here, we are having a talking sex evening. And it's not a therapy evening. It's not a place where you're going to be put on the spot. But what we'd love actually people to do is to gather in this space and talk about a really important aspect and topic. It's in the context of a marriage relationship. And we would love it if young and older, like adults, would come and join. Uh, whether you're in a marriage relationship or not, we think that this information is really important and will actually cultivate health and healthy conversation within our community. So would you come to that 7.30 to 9.30? The second thing I want you to put in your diary is July the 9th, Sunday morning, July the 9th, because on that morning we're going to have Dr. Fergal Armstrong come and be interviewed about addiction. If there's one thing I think our culture is, could be characterised by it, is an addictive culture. And uh, Dr. Fergal Armstrong has been working with Turning Point, an organisation in Box Hill, that's been committed to helping people turn their lives around through drug and, uh, because due to drug and al alcohol addiction over many years. And if there's one critical question I want to ask of Dr. Fergal Armstrong is, that what does a healing community look like? And I reckon that would be a morning that you'd want to invite friends along to, young and old alike, because it will actually, the things that you will learn on that morning will be applicable across the board when it comes to all different kinds of addictions. So I want you to put July the 9th in your diary. 
And uh, the very last thing is that a number of us, a group of us, actually went and saw the documentary that Peter Berg, who just did the reading then, uh, has been working on together to tell the story of Brenda Matthews, an Indigenous woman who was part of Stolen Generation, but was trying to bridge and has been trying to bridge her white family with her indigenous family over many years and try and reconcile the two and all of the, the healing and the emotion that's as a result of that. And we saw that in the Palais Theatre uh, in Borwen on um, Friday and it was just marvellous to be part of. A, a terrific, heartfelt wrenching sort of uh, documentary but one that I would encourage people to go along to and we just might see how we might do something here in the city of Maroondah because it's just so powerful. So those three things are, are of importance. Courage under fire. The critical question we're asking people, uh, we're, uh, we're asking in this series is what does it look like for a person of faith to inhabit a culture? A culture that seemingly becomes more conflicted, more torn apart, if you like, more pressurised. That's been our experience here in Australia and throughout the world. Is what does a person of faith, how might they inhabit their faith in an increasingly sometimes challenging culture? And so we've been picking up the story of Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. And their story has been one, if you weren't here two weeks ago, where they have been deported from Jerusalem, north hundreds of kilometres, and they are inhabiting the courts of a foreign king. And critically, the question that's being asked of them is, how do we inhabit our faith? How do we honour the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the courts of a foreign king who believes in different gods, whose, whose world and, and worldview is in part similar but then very different when it comes to the nature of the God that they serve? How do we seek to honour him in an environment that would want to pressure and squeeze us to just conform to the culture around about? And so Daniel and his three friends had been undergone, were undergoing a process of assimilation. They were becoming learners of the Babylonian way. And the threat that they faced and they were more than aware of is that if we allowed Babylon to have its entire way with us, then what of our faith might be left? You know, at this moment, because Daniel and his friends had some, if you like, plush jobs in the king's palace that came with threats. It would be very easy for them to just sort of step stage right and to assimilate with the culture around, put their faith convictions to the side and get on living a kind of a life that would be provided for. But that's not the story of Daniel and his three friends. And so part of the things that we discovered last week was that they seem to be the kind of people that would want to respond in a positive way to their convictions. I'm reminded of the, an insight by uh, Reverend Graham Paulson, who's a minister, a Christian minister, who said this, an indigenous man, who said this of any culture. He said, whenever you walk into a sports team, this is, these are my words, but whenever you walk into a, a sports team or a workplace or just a generally community culture around, someone who's influenced by their faith in Jesus would recognize that there is no perfect culture in fact, that in any culture that you are involved with, in light of Jesus, there are things that you will be assessing that you would need to adapt in light of Jesus, adopt in light of Jesus, and abandon. And one of the challenges that you will face is to discern between those things. 
What is it that I can affirm? What is it that I can tweak? And what is it that I need to set aside and say no to? And that every person of faith who's following Jesus will find that challenge wherever they be. Well, the things that we discovered about Daniel is this, firstly, is that even though he was in a foreign land, God was with him. God had not abandoned him. The second thing that we discovered about Daniel is that he intuitively felt there was a sense of purpose for him being there. When someone comes to place their faith in Jesus, he gives them a bigger purpose. And one of those purposes is to be a presence for him wherever they are, where he's placed. Just this last Thursday, I do some, undertake some study at a Ridley College in Parkville on a Thursday afternoon, or Thursday day, I should say. And as I go to get coffee and I'm getting to know the different baristas and the people who own and part of the cafe there, we had Matt Belusoff, another one of our scientists. He just came in and, and uh, we interacted, of course. We, Matt, we talked about science and faith. And Matt very quickly and very openly and very easily, just as we were waiting in line to actually order our foods, said, actually, my friend and I here, Troy, he's studying theology, and I'm sort of on the Monash faculty here doing research stuff, and we're just trying to sort of talk about this idea that maybe it's blown up this, this discontinuity between faith and science. Just so naturally introduced that into the context. As a result of that, um, my barista said, oh, oh, are you, are you a minister? I said, yeah, that's, that's true. And he said, oh, you're going to have to forgive me for my sins. That was the first thing that he said. I said, that's okay, I don't forgive sins, I can hear them if you like, but Jesus forgives sins. Um, and, and I just love the way that natural conversation could actually, but I thought, isn't that interesting that the first place he goes to, the story that he has about Jesus, is that somehow he needs a forgiveness. But there's so much more to Jesus, over and abundant, beyond forgiveness, although that is an essentially important thing. And so there was this sense that Daniel had that wherever he was, he wanted to be kind of purposeful. A presence for Jesus where he was. A presence for God, if you like, where he was. The third thing we discover that this particular passage highlights is that not only did God imbue them with understanding and wisdom from learning literature and, and, and various aspects of their culture, but it also we, we discover that it seems as though God has given Daniel a particular gift to discern visions and dreams, which sets up the very next thing. Because we discover, if you like, the linking to the next chapter is that... The king, Nebuchadnezzar, he has a dream. And it's not just a dream, it's a nightmare. It's a nightmare that causes him to be so terrified that it just ripples throughout the palace court. One thing about that culture then is that they believed that the gods spoke to humans through dreams. In fact, in many parts of that world today, that still holds true. That God might speak to people through dreams. And so there's an added extra here is that the king has had a frightening nightmare and the added extra is that it might be the gods are talking to him. And so he wants to have answers and answers quickly. And as a result of that, he makes a threat to the palace that if you don't discern what it is from all of the different courtiers or those who should be interpreting visions and dreams, then I will kill you. Now, we need to remember that Daniel is inhabiting a workplace where there is no OHS, <laughs> there is no work cover, there is no work safe, and that there's no independent arbiter that he can go to to try and actually get any help. He is simply at the mercy of the king. And one of the things that Peter described is that, if you like, there was this panic throughout the court, but not Daniel. 
Now, I want to ask the question this morning is, why not Daniel? Because I've discovered in my life that when there's a threat, when there's an adversity, when there's a challenge that's beset me, I'm torn in two different directions. Firstly, I realize that fear can shrink faith, but also that fear can drive you towards faith. Have you noticed that too? That in times in your life, that there's those moments where there's an impulse that comes over you, or fear and anxiety and worry, and the first thing you do is throw up your hands and you panic. And then perhaps soon after that, or maybe a time after that, after you've had your panic, you find that you also have an energized prayer life. Even some of the most hardened atheists say that there's moments in their lives when there's adversity that they find themselves involuntarily, if you like, calling out to someone or something to help. And so that was true very much of Daniel himself. But the first thing I want you to observe here is the way in which he responds. Because it reveals something about the calmness, if you like, that we're seeing. I'm not sure if Daniel was like the duck that's peddling very quickly and hard underneath the surface, but looking calm on the outside. But he simply goes to the, the person who's put in charge of executing them all, Arioch, and he actually speaks to him with wisdom and tact. And he simply asks him the question, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Maybe there's a sense of, why did the king have to hurry about this? What's, what, what's with the, the impulse of needing to have this resolved so quickly? Which is probably also a reflection on the sense of fear by which Nebuchadnezzar is being captivated by this nightmare. And then Daniel, if you like, he seems to actually, in the midst of this asking, then perhaps go towards the king, whether it's through a third person or to the king himself, and simply ask for time. And this is where we sense Daniel's gifting coming into the forefront. Because he has a confidence, if you like, that God would speak. So the, the next thing we discover is that Daniel is actually having a prayer meeting. He gathers together his three friends and they seek God together. I wonder what that prayer meeting was like. I wonder if there was a wringing of hands. If there was a falling on their faces. If there was a calling out and a crying out to God in loud voices. Or perhaps tears. God, if you don't do something, we will perish. But our life is in your hands. One of the most fruitful things that you can do in your life when you are faced with adversity is rather than face it alone, call one or two other people perhaps of faith in your life and invite them to pray with you. Because it wasn't supposed to be done alone. I don't think faith is supposed to be done alone. But even more so, the collective prayer together of others in seeking God is powerful. I wonder if you are about to embark on a new season of life and you haven't, as I say, gone to the mountain. What do I mean by that? I mean that when there's a season in your life in which there's an important decision to be made or you're facing a challenge, one of the most important things perhaps you could do is spend time away with God, maybe on a mountain, but just away with Him. 
seeking him, setting aside time. Maybe there's something in your life that you realize is an important thing, an important decision to be made about young people, an important decision about workspace, an important decision about a relationship. I want to ask you, have you gone to the mountain? A portion time and maybe even called one or two or three others into that space to see, will you pray on my behalf? Because this is really important. That's what Daniel did. We don't know how long they prayed for. You imagine the king being so frightened that he perhaps didn't have an extended time. But then there was a revelation. And Daniel receives this understanding about what the dream is all about. And this is what he does. He offers up a prayer back to God that goes something like this. That also reveals, I think, an answer to the why I think Daniel could face the adversity he did with, I would think, relative calm, even in the midst of adversity. See if you can pick it. This is his response, his prayerful response to God. Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells within him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Does it come through? I wonder if part of Daniel's response is that he had an overdeveloped understanding of the bigness and greatness of his God. And therefore, he understood his position, if you like, before him. His God was big. And therefore, Daniel had a balanced image and picture of himself. And with this overdeveloped, if you like, image of God in his life, he could respond accordingly to the adversity placed before him. Because he understood his position before him. Now, I'm not sure if we're always like Daniel. Perhaps you're here this morning and exploring faith. Perhaps you've been long in the tooth in faith. And for you, your experience might be a little bit more like this. <laughs> if in doubt, in moments of emergency, break the glass. But Daniel's image of God was that he was big. If you like, in a world which encourages you to say all there is is here and now a flat world thinking, or perhaps that you should keep faith private to yourself and not make it public, or this third construct, the downward pressure of me-ism, that the world is essentially about me, and that if there is anything I have achieved, it's because I have a gift's I have abilities and I have agency. 
Daniel seemed to carry this sense that there was a God who was big. And that because of that, he could press into him and ask him for a deliverance in his life. Now, can I just hit the pause button for a moment? Because it sounds easy, doesn't it? There was a threat. There was a prayer. There was a revelation. And then there was a a praise offered up. Easy, right? So if you are over the age of 60 in this room right now, I want to ask you, is that true? Is it always as straightforward as just that? And let me ask you this for those of you who perhaps have journeyed with God longer. When do you grow most in your life? As you look back on the seasons of your life, have you grown with God and has your faith been strengthened in those times of ease or the times of challenge and difficulty? Now, you don't need to put your hand up, but just maybe nod to me out there. Has it been in the times of ease you've grown or in the times of adversity? It's the adversity. And, and so isn't that the interesting thing? That you can actually develop faith. But there seems to be an aspect of faith in growing with God that we don't always know why. But that seasons of challenge come. And when they come, there's something about them that we implicitly know grows us. But yet tests us. At the same time. And both of those things are true. Many years ago when my wife and I, some of you have heard this story many nights. When we were studying over in Portland, Oregon. At a biblical seminary. We had set aside our teaching jobs and said we want to go find out more about our faith. And we're over in Portland, Oregon doing our studies. In the second year. We found that our income stream had dried up. We owned a little house down in Nilma, and yes, it was a cheap house down in Nilma back in those times, which is down in Warrigal Way, and we were getting an income from that. And the people who were renting it moved out. Believe it or not, back then, rentals weren't always easy to fill. Times have changed. The second thing we discovered was the housing where we were in was no longer going to be available, and they were going to increase the rent. And so Bron and I had felt that God had led us to that place to do the studies, but we were going to have to return home earlier. So we're in a moment of crisis. And so we began to pray. But in the back of our minds, we thought, well, God, maybe you've brought us over here and we're just going to have to return home early, unfinished. And so we prayed. And as we prayed, we did everything we could. We knocked on every door just like you would do. We tried every human resource we could to try and work out a way forward. And there didn't seem to be any coming. But then, when it seemed to be the bottom of the nine, bases loaded, we found that within a two-day period, three things happened. Almost all at once. Firstly, we received a call from Australia saying, we found someone to rent the property. 
Second thing, we received another call saying, you know how you apply to be lead tenants of a domestic violence shelter down in Portland, Oregon here? Well, you're actually successful. And yes, you being a male Troy can be part of that as well. And that meant free accommodation, being lead tenants for ladies and their children who were escaping violent situations. The third thing we discovered is that Bronze mum had put in a barrel because of an advertisement in the newspaper here in Australia, the application for a green card to the US. And it just so happens that out of all of Oceania, 800 were pulled out and Bronze's name happened to be pulled out, which meant that she could actually apply for off work beyond campus, which at that time was paying $3.75 an hour. <laughs> to get a job outside to actually earn larger income so that we could stay. Now, all that's wonderful, isn't it? What did I learn from that moment, though? Is that we often meet God at the end of our tether. Why? Because in our humanness, we often want to try and construct and make work and fix and resolve because we're used to being in control. But there are some moments in our lives where we're totally out of control, aren't we? And sometimes at the end of our tether, when we have tried every other human resource, it's not as though we haven't been praying. I wonder if God might just reveal those moments so that we might pocket that. So that when we face our next adversity, there might be an accumulation of moments where we've set up that instinctive sense that, God, you have provided for us in the past. And so I anticipate that you will provide for us in the future. I don't know how, I don't know when, but I seek you. And it seems as though Daniel had developed this sense that God was big and as a result of that, those opportunities that presented to him that were real genuine threats were an opportunity for God to prove himself yet again. There's still prayers that I'm praying that haven't been fulfilled. But in my mind, sometimes I need to recall those past moments and actually be stronger and stand upon them and say, God, you have shown yourself in the past, so I am going to stand on this and ask that you might show yourself in the future. Would you do that? And I wonder if Daniel's example in that place is that his God was big and as a result of that, if you like, he found it quite easy to point people to a God who would deliver, even in the midst of adversities. And I don't want to overplay that easiness of it, because after all, it was only his life that was on the chopping block, literally. But this is what his response was when he came into the king. No king... It's not about me, and it's not as though I have this supernatural ability. I want you to know that any gifts that I have are really given to me by God alone because I have a sense of his bigness. No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about, but there is a God. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. I want to talk to you about him. And as a result of that, 
Daniel seemed to occupy his workplace, if you like, his sporting clubs, his community around about, his family, with a balanced view of self. It's him. It's him. And therefore, I just play a part. And God used him. And it goes on and says, Surely, the king says, Your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, for he's the one who reveals mysteries. So let me ask you this morning, whether you're listening or here in the presence, what's your picture of God? Sometimes when adversity comes my way, it's not that my God is too big that's the issue. It's that my God is too small. And I wonder if he wants to expand your view today. To remind you of the past so that that would help you in the present. Because he hasn't abandoned you. He is with you. He wants to work in and for and through you. I'm going to have the band come right now and just play quietly. Because I just wonder if this is an opportune time to ask you, how big is your God? Is there something that God wants to whisper to you this morning? Because one of the challenges that we've been asking ourselves is that how does a person of faith balance their inner convictions with their outer behaviors? Have you been running around this week with your hands in the air with the ah panic stations? And this morning, once again, you are reminded to go to the God of the heavens to ask Him. In fact, we've been inviting us and will continue to to think about closing the gap. That is, how wide is that gap between your outer behavior and your inner convictions? Is it narrow or is it wide? And how might God be asking you to close that gap today? Well, to help create that space and that reflection time with God, we thought it would be apt to finish our time this morning with the communion space. That moment in which we, uh, Jesus followers, recall the greatest gift and sacrifice Jesus made to reconcile a world that was away from him to him and his father. We wonder if that might be an apt time for us right now to in light of that great gift to ask God what of my life would you invite to close that gap that the outward actions of my behaviour might be closer and proximal to the inner convictions of my heart as we do reminded that on the night Jesus was betrayed he took bread and he broke it And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. 
Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And then he says, what I would like you to do is reflect upon your relationships, upon your walk with God, such that if there be any discord, this space in preparation might be one to wipe the slate clean, begin afresh, so that you can participate with God in this gift of new life in Jesus because of what he's done for you on a cross. If you are here with us this morning and faith is just new to you, but you would like to draw close to God and believe that the gift that Jesus offered is for you as well, then I would invite you to participate with us. There's a card on the tables that you could actually go ahead and participate with and read through that would help facilitate that. But otherwise, as the music is playing, I would invite you to, to get up out of your chair, if you would like, and to go and take a cup and take some bread and sit back down and reflect with God and give thanks. Eat the bread, drink the cup, and then we'll stand and finish our time together. Would you do that? You're all close to God.